Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. On this Easter Sunday, we conclude our series in the book of Acts with Paul's conversion in chapter 9. Together, we're celebrating the good news of Jesus. Thanks for joining us. Well, happy Easter to you all. I sure hope that you are enjoying the signs of spring popping up all around us. Although in some ways it still feels like we're in a season of winter right now with this virus and the social isolation. Uh, But let's continue to pray about that as well, that a spring will come in the midst of this season. Well, this morning, I'm actually going to finish a series we started in January in the book of Acts called Onward. And so right away, let me just invite you, if you have a Bible, to take it and turn to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now, you may be wondering why in the world on Easter Sunday would I talk about the book of Acts? And the reason for that is actually pretty simple. You see, the story we're going to be looking at together really is the entire reason for Jesus' resurrection. In fact, if you're following on your notes, like the season of spring, the resurrection is all about bringing new life to dead things. Friends, it is precisely because Jesus rose from the dead that we can still be raised No. I messed that up. I'm sorry. No, you're totally fine. What do I do at that point? Um, I would just start over if you don't mind. No, nope. sorry. Totally I won't do that again. If it happens again later on, we can cut. Okay. Since it's pretty early on. I'm not going to stop. Well, happy Easter to you all. I hope and trust that you're enjoying the signs of spring popping up all around us, even though in many ways I know it still feels like a season of winter with this virus and the social isolation. Uh, But let's continue to pray as God's people that a season of spring comes in that situation as well. Well, this morning for Easter, I want us to finish our series in the book of Acts that we started way back in January, a series we called Onward. In fact, if you have your Bible with you, I'll encourage you right now to turn to Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Now, you may be wondering, why would we talk about Acts on Easter Sunday? And the reason for that is pretty simple for me. You see, the passage we're going to talk about together is the entire point of Jesus' resurrection. If you're following on your notes, like the season of spring, the resurrection is all about bringing new life to dead things. Friends, it is precisely because Jesus rose from the dead that he can bring spiritually dead people to new life still today. And the passage we're looking at together is probably the most famous example of this in the entire Bible. It is the conversion story of Saul, who is also known as the Apostle Paul. Now, let me just pause right here and ask you, what do you feel when I say that word conversion? How do you feel about that? Does it make you feel uncomfortable? Does it make you feel uneasy? I think for most people today, that word conversion makes us a little uncomfortable. It seems a little narrow-minded to ask people to convert to something. So let me just put it out there. Is conversion something we should still be talking about today in the 21st century? Well, if I look back at scripture, the answer is yes. In fact, Jesus himself would say in Matthew 18, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then on your notes, I have printed there John 3, verse 3. Would you read that out loud with me? It says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now that's interesting because even though those are two different words, theologians Theologians believe he is talking about the same thing, the same idea there. We must be converted into a new life. 
Now, let me just ease any uncomfortableness you may have about that word conversion. According to the dictionary, here's all conversion means if you're on your notes. It's just the process of changing from one form to another. And honestly, we use this word all the time. For example, some of you have converted your CDs into MP3s. Kids, you may need to explain what that is to your parents. Even in nature, right now at this moment, caterpillars are converting, they're changing, they're transforming into butterflies. And that's all I wanna say is that's what the Christian faith is all about. It's all about transformation. And so yes, we still need to talk about conversion today because if you're following, the gospel of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection transforms people. Now, as we've seen in the book of Acts, the early Christians didn't just join a movement or a club. They didn't just follow Jesus on Sundays. They were converted. They were transformed into whole new people. They were unrecognizable from who they were in the past because that is what happens when you truly meet Jesus. And I want to look at you with you today at one of the most dramatic examples of this in the entire Bible. Now, before we do that, though, I just want to say one thing. When it comes to different conversions in the Bible, actual conversion accounts, what we see is they're very diverse. Some people's conversions are dramatic. Some of them are quiet. Some are very sudden. With some, it's a process over time. And so listen, as we go through Saul's conversion story today, while it is super dramatic, I just want to say it doesn't happen this way for everyone. But what it does do, it shows us that there are certain elements that are usually present in somebody's transformation. And so as we go through this, I just wanna challenge you right up front, have I really been converted or transformed by the resurrected Jesus? Okay, so let's look at Acts chapter nine, starting in verse one together. The story starts with a good description of Saul before his conversion. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, the first time we read about Saul is in Acts chapter 8, when he's the one leading the charge of the murder of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And then we read... Just a couple verses later in Acts 8, verse 3, these words, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. As we've talked about, this persecution of the church in Jerusalem caused the disciples to scatter throughout the known world. And we discovered that sometimes it's in the hardest seasons of life that God does his best things. And certainly that is something I am praying through during this whole pandemic. Back to our story though, when Saul discovered some of the disciples had escaped to Damascus, he planned to expand his persecution beyond Jerusalem. And the reason for that is Damascus was one of the key hubs in the area at that time. So if the way of Jesus made its way to Damascus, it would go even further into the world. And so he thought, I need to stop this right here. Now, why is Saul so opposed to what he calls the way of Jesus? Well, number one, he would have just thought it was plain wrong. You see, he was a monotheistic Jew. That's just a fancy word for saying he believed in one God. There was only one God. And Christians were claiming that this Jesus was not only the Messiah, but that he was also God. And so he would have just regarded that as incompatible with the Jewish faith. 
But there was more to his rejection than just that. If you're following, not only would Saul have considered Christianity wrong, he would have considered it deceptive. This is because the gospel of Jesus makes such incredible claims. It claims not only is Jesus God, but that he is the only way to God. And he proved this through his resurrection from the dead. Now, Saul knows, like we all know, nobody can raise from the dead. Nobody can be raised from the dead. And so those who are going around saying this are obviously consciously trying to deceive the Jewish community. And so don't miss this because this is a key part in understanding Saul's life. As a zealous Jew, he actually thought he was doing this for God. Persecuting these Christians was an act of obedience to God. So now we come to the first stage in Saul's conversion. Look at verse three with me. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, honestly, I could spend a whole week just on that one verse right there, that incredible statement, this idea that Jesus is so connected to us as his people. He so empathizes with us that we are one with him. What he experiences, we experience. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me great hope during a scary, fearful time like this. Jesus is with us in the most profound way imaginable. Now, verse five, really the turning point here on your notes, read it out loud with me. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Verse six, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now, if you're following on your notes, Here's what I'd say, number one, conversion usually begins with a confrontation with the real God. It usually begins with a confrontation with the real God. On the screen right now, you'll see a painting from one of the artists in our church, her name is Diane, of this moment of confrontation. This was a confrontation between the real God and Saul. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, look again at verse five where Saul says, who are you, Lord? Friends, that is a key question, if not the key question, every single person must ask in their lives. Who is God really? You see, Saul thought he knew who God was. He thought, for example, God could never become a human being. He thought God would never set aside the temple or the sacrifices or the law. Therefore, because he knew who God was, he thought Christians had to be wrong. So he was persecuting them for his God. But what happens on the road to Damascus? He discovers the God he has is a God he has constructed, a God he wanted, not the God who is really there. Most people today, we're not likely to construct a God like Saul's God here, but all of us are tempted to create God in our own image. That includes me, that includes you. You see, the average person today in the United States still holds that if you ask them, do you believe in God? Most people would still say, yes, I believe in God. I believe in a God who is loving and a God who accepts everyone. In fact, researchers have shown this has now become the five core beliefs of American Americans, including many Christians. You'll see it up on the screen here. Number one, we believe a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. 
That is generally what our country believes right now. And as different as that is from Saul's God, who was a God of law and rules and good works, I would submit to you that is every bit as much of a creation of the God we want, the God we have made, not the God who is really there. Now you may ask, what is the problem with that creating God in this image? Well, everything. Because if we have a God who we have made, it's just basically a projection of ourselves. And if you're following, a God I have made in my image can't actually change me. That God on that slide can't change you. He can't transform you. He can't help you because he's not greater than you. He's actually just a construction of what we want God to be. What we need more than anything else is a confrontation with the real God because we can only be converted, we can only be transformed, we can only be changed when we begin to sense we're dealing with the God who is actually there, not the God we want him to be. That means that there are some things the real God says we may have trouble accepting. For example, the fifth one on that slide says, good people go to heaven when they die. I'd say that's what most people, even many people in the church believe today because that's what we want to believe. Let's be honest. We want to believe that. But according to Jesus, nobody comes to the Father except through him because nobody is good enough. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That right there is what I'm talking about. That is a confrontation with our beliefs. And all I'm saying today is, If you don't have a God who can confront your beliefs, you're probably not dealing with the real God. You certainly don't have a God who can change your life. Friends, this right here is why I think so many people in our country, even in our churches, have never really experienced the power of the risen Jesus in their lives because they've never really come face to face with the real Jesus. Now, maybe an example of what I mean would help. I'll use my own story of conversion. I accepted Christ when I was seven years old, and while I believe something significant happened on that day, I can honestly say I probably wasn't converted, remember it's a process over time, when I was in high school. You see, much like Saul, I had created a God in my image, and this God was a God who sat up on a throne, he was aloof, he was God, right? And I thought in order for me to please this God, I had to be as good as I could possibly be. And so I spent most of my life trying to be good, but I always came up empty. And so I went to the Bible and I started to read and I discovered that I could never be good enough to please this God. And I was confronted with that in my life. I'll come back to my story later. Now, many people don't know the real God. They have faith in something but it's not true faith that ultimately transforms their lives. And it usually takes a confrontation with the real God to start that change. So let me ask you, have I been confronted by the real God? Have you been confronted with the real God or are you serving a God of your own image? Now that leads to the second stage of conversion, which if you're following there, conversion usually involves a crisis of faith, a crisis of faith. Look at verses seven and eight. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now there are a lot of us who read this story and we think Saul's conversion was instantaneous, just like that. 
And I would just say it's definitely dramatic. I mean, a voice from heaven, flashing lights, blindness, the voice of Jesus, but I'm not sure Saul's conversion is as sudden as it looks. Notice, for example, Jesus does not say to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul, kneel down. I want you to ask me into your heart right now as your Lord and Savior. Here's the prayer you're supposed to pray. Now repeat after me. No, Saul is confronted and then he goes through a time of blindness. I believe that is both physical blindness, but also spiritual blindness. What is happening in that dark time during this crisis? Well, the good thing is we actually know because Paul writes about it later in some of his letters. One of the things we know was happening is he was struggling with this idea of a crucified Messiah. You see, in the law, we're told that anybody who hangs on a tree is cursed by God, and he knows Messiah is to be anointed by God, blessed by God, so this is incompatible for him. But then he's confronted with Jesus raised from the dead, just as the followers of Jesus were saying, and so here's what Saul must have been thinking. Wait a minute. Jesus was raised from the dead. I saw him. That means he really must be Messiah. He really must be anointed and blessed by God the Father. Now that led him to a second crisis. You see, if Jesus really is Messiah, then the cross must have been a part of God's plan for salvation. And that leads to his primary crisis of faith. This means that all of my good works, all of my observances to the law, all of my persecuting of the Christians is rubbish. It's garbage. It's meaningless. My whole life, has been utterly wrong. I cannot earn my way to God's grace. His grace must come to me by faith in Jesus. So in some, that's Saul's crisis, right? This idea of a crucified Messiah and that salvation is by grace alone. Now, the average person in our country, including you and me, we're probably gonna have a different set of crisis points. For example, I have heard this. The Bible says God is good and loving, So I can't understand why he allows so much evil and suffering in this world. The Bible says Jesus is the only way to God. Is that really the only way? What about everybody else? What about other religions? And so we have these questions, right? And we say, how can I believe in Jesus when I have all these problems? But what happens on the road to Damascus? Look carefully. Does Jesus say, Saul, Saul, let me explain the Trinity to you. Saul, let me explain the problem of evil to you before you follow me. No, he doesn't do that. And yet Saul is converted. Why? Here's why. In his crisis, he knows with certainty that Jesus is alive. And that is all that matters to him at that point. And so he says, I don't understand everything right now. I've got questions. But if this is true, if you're alive, then there's only one thing for me to say to you right now. What would you have me do, Lord? Let me go back to my story. So I was confronted with a God in the Bible who wasn't like the God I imagined. I began to read the scripture with this crisis because I couldn't prove myself to God. What was I to do? And I began to look at different passages in the Bible and I came across the Lord's Prayer. This was the most transformative moment in my life. And Jesus says to his disciples, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, you know the rest of it probably. But it was that second word, that word father, that really knocked me down in my tracks. You see, in Hebrew, that word means Abba. Literally, that means daddy. Never in my life up until that point have I thought that I could call God, the God who sits on the throne, daddy. That was a crisis of faith for me. 
because that is not the God I believed in. I'll come back to that. I don't know what your crisis of faith may be. Maybe you say, well, I can't believe in Christianity. I look at the church and see all the terrible things they've done throughout history. Look at all the evil and suffering in the world, including right now in this pandemic. What about all the people who have never heard of Christ? Or maybe, quite honestly, it's more personal for you. Do I have to give up this sin to follow you, Jesus? Do you really forgive people? I mean, you don't know my past. Maybe right now you're being faced with your own mortality in the midst of this pandemic. Let me just ask you a question. Was Jesus raised from the dead or not? Was Jesus raised from the dead or not? If he was, then those things are secondary. I'm not saying they're unimportant. I'm not saying they're insignificant. But if you're on your notes, if Jesus rose from the dead, I can trust him with my crisis. I can trust the real God to handle my questions, to handle my fears, my doubts, my failures. In fact, he welcomes them. But first, this is how conversion works. I must step into a relationship of trust with him. And so let me ask you to consider this question if you're following. What crisis of faith is keeping me from trusting Jesus? That leads to the last stage of conversion, which if you're following, conversion always includes, notice the word change there, it always includes faith that leads to lasting transformation. I'm gonna skip down to verse 17 of chapter nine. Just understand in the verses in between that, Jesus calls a disciple by the name of Ananias to go minister and pray over Saul. In my opinion, Ananias is really one of the unsung heroes of the church because I don't know about you, I cannot imagine being called to go minister to a serial killer, but that's what God is asking Ananias to do. And he does it. Look at verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul. I love that. Brother Saul, welcoming him into the family without hesitation. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now join me in reading verse 18 on your notes. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, verse 19, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Another artist in our church named Jerissa created a painting of this exact moment. This is the moment of Saul's transformation. Such a powerful image, such a powerful moment in Saul's life. Now I wanna keep going in Acts 9 just a bit to show you how total this transformation was. The rest of verse 19, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. There is no other way to describe that than a total transformation. Saul had come to Damascus to destroy the way of Jesus. Now he's actually preaching in the streets of Damascus about this way of Jesus. That is what an encounter with the living, resurrected Jesus will do in a person's life. If you're following, a real encounter with the living Jesus will change you. It changes you. It transforms you. You are born again, as Jesus said, into a brand new life, 
faith no longer is just a set of beliefs or moralities. It's not some rules. It's definitely not a religion. It is a brand new way of life that is different than our old way of life. And it affects every area of our lives. It affects our priorities. It affects our morals. Yes, it affects our relationships, our marriages, how we parent. It affects our workplaces, how we work, how we interact with people in our schools, friends. So let me ask you, have you been converted to this way of life? In the end, the proof of true conversion is in the pudding, whatever that phrase means. I think we understand. In the end, the way you know what you've been, that you've been converted is by the kind of life that results. It's a life that looks more and more like Jesus' life. It's a life of obedience, a life of true intimacy with God, your Father, a life of sacrifice, not selfishness, a life of generosity instead of consumption, a life of fleeing from immorality and the idols that are constantly trying to grab our attention in this world, a life of deeper community with other Jesus followers of all races, of all classes, a life of trusting that the Bible is God's very word to us and the best possible God guide for how I can live my life, a life believing that as an ordinary person, I have been empowered by Jesus to continue his mission in this world. I could go on, but please don't miss it. True conversion will change your life. Back to my story, confronted with this idea that I could have that personal of a relationship with Jesus. I stepped into it. I began to call him Abba, Father, and I can say that was a defining moment in my life. It changed the way I viewed God and my relationship with him. Have I stumbled and failed and sinned since then? Of course, but it is no longer a performance. It's a relationship with God. As we close, I hope you see what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not about rules. It's not about religion. It's not about going to church and checking off a box. It is about trust and obedience that transforms you into a whole new person. Now, the good news is that Jesus is still in the business of resurrections today. He is still alive and he's still seeking the lost and the blind, just like Saul. In fact, Saul's story should remind us that we can never write anyone off from being beyond the love of Christ. That includes me. That includes you. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you today, have you met the real living God? Have you experienced the power of the gospel personally in your life? If you're following, have I been changed by an encounter with the resurrected Jesus? If you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope you've been confronted today in the most loving way possible with the real Jesus. The Jesus who is calling you to transformation. A Jesus with whom you can trust your doubts and fears and questions. A Jesus who is inviting you right now, right now, to step into a new way of life with him. Because after all, that, my friends, is what Easter is all about. It's about new life. If you'd like to learn more about what it would mean to step into new life with Jesus, let me just mention two options for you this moment. You can see down in the bottom of your screen, if you're watching, there is a button that you could click that says prayer. If you click that, somebody will connect with you as soon as possible to talk about this new life with you. Or if you'd like to learn more, you could also text CHEaster to this number, 94090. And somebody will get back to you. They'll email you, they'll call you. We would love to follow up with you in this way. Friends, please know, we care for you, we love you, 
We're praying for you during this time. And my hope is this day is filled with great joy and hope because you know what? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Abba, we thank you that you have conquered death, that you have called us into new life. For anybody who may be watching this today, Lord, I pray that they would feel that invitation, that they would understand it's okay to have questions and fears and doubts, but because you have risen from the dead, they can trust you. I ask that they would be able to step into that in faith and begin the process of transformation. For those of us who have already stepped into that, remind us it is a process. It takes time for us to become more and more like Jesus. And so when we fail, we know you're inviting us into deeper trust, into a deeper life with you. We thank you for the gospel, that it has made us into new people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.